There is a place where fears and fantasies get weighed on substance alone. Legends and lores are examined in fresh light. Conspiracy theory meets conspiracy fact. Abandon your defenses. Embrace the possibilities. Step beyond the threshold into other realms. You're listening to Threshold Radio. I'm Anthony K. With me is Sam Maranto and John Stevenson. we got a good show for you tonight. We have Richard Dolan calling in as well as Michael Clean and Corinne Liston from Scotland. So stay tuned. We're going to start off with Richard Dolan right after this quick commercial break. Welcome back to Threshold. And here we are. Threshold Radio. The whole team is here. Richard's back finally. Yeah, man. I thought Richard abandoned us. <laughs> Richard Happy was in Leeds. Here. He was in the. God, he was everywhere. You were in the uh, uh, Enchanted City. You were in uh, the Enchanted City. What's yeah, that? Yeah, the Wizard of Oz. Oh, I, I was going to. Like, <laughs> I mean, isn't that the Wizard I was of Oz? There, yes. He went there to see I the Wizard. Damn. One of the witches. Yeah. <laughs> He was dancing with the witch. Richard was investigating that the house that killed the witch was really a UFO. <laughs> I was recently at the MUFON UFO Symposium. That was a little about a week ago in Irvine, California. And I just came back uh, this weekend from Leeds, uh, United Kingdom, for the Exopolitics Leeds Conference. So, uh, And then I've got a bunch of things coming up. See yeah, the demonstrators and fires um, out there? London's not doing too good lately. <laughs> No, all sorts of stuff. He was in West Yorkshire, where they have a very good football team, from what I yes. hear. But they're not doing very good recently. Is that correct? Well, the uh, the riots uh, really took off just around the time that I was leaving, and um, it's uh, you know it's very distressing. I have to say, yeah, really the um, you know there was a, a police shooting of a of a person in North London in Tottenham, and. Uh, what started out as a peaceful protest uh, I escalated into just wholesale looting and mayhem and just criminal activity that is now, after four days, finally settling down in London, but has spread to other parts of the UK, including Manchester, where I flew out of just the other day, um, and a, a number of other cities up in the, the central area of, of the UK. It's very distressing. And, and all this, I mean, would you say, um, due to economic strife, um, what is it, I social think, tension uh, in general? You've got, you've got uh, I mean, I've been looking at the video, and, and um, no, a lot of it is just pure criminal activity. I mean, case closed. You've got people just losing all sense of, uh, of what is right and wrong, and they're smashing into shops and just stealing uh, high-def flat screen TVs and uh, electronic gadgets and uh, sneakers and everything else that they just want. I've so they're freaking to, uh, anarchists and criminals of, and just yeah, it's just like they all went crazy. It's just really bizarre. Yeah. I think now that's, see, that's now I'm mind not. you, they have no guns out there. You know, I don't even know if the Bobbies well, the, have guns. The, the criminals do. The criminals I mean, the have guns, don't. yes. But uh, 
I don't, if that were to happen here, you know, it could be curbed pretty quickly. I mean, they don't have anywhere near the number of guns that Americans have. But I'll tell you this. Um, the U.S. police would – there's – in my opinion, there's no way that U.S. police would allow this kind of nonsense to go on. I mean, they are – I think much more experienced at dealing with crowd control than these uh, the UK police just from the. Uh, the but don't they just have seen. sticks? Fingers. <laughs> <laughs> well, the old joke is stop, or I'll say stop again. <laughs> I, th I think they're better equipped than that. I think uh, UK cops do now have guns. Uh, but that doesn't mean they're going to use live ammo on these people. They're not going to do that. I think that the question is, are they going to get rubber or plastic bullets, which I think they should have, tear gas, uh, water cannons, I think they're not bringing into it. So, And these are the types of things. What, what uh, U.S. police now use are acoustic weaponry. And I know this. My son, who's 15, has already done a number of political demonstrations and has dealt firsthand with this. Um, he was at a G20 protest in Pittsburgh uh, a little over a year ago. Yes, I let my teenage son go. He, there were a couple of adults that I knew he was with. And um, I nearly went myself. I didn't go. But the the cops there, I can tell you, there's no way that uh, they're going to let you know this type of thing get out of control. Our police they have far too many resources. And the U.K. cops, in my opinion... For all the surveillance they do in that country, uh, which is intense, <laughs> uh, they just simply allowed this situation to go uh, completely out of control. And I'm I'm all for uh, peaceful public demonstrations. Oh sure, uh, for a lot of reasons. But oh, this sure. is this is beyond that. This is simply looting and thievery and um, and bodily harm. Uh, what three uh, citizens? Who are protecting private property were run over and killed by oh, someone my. just last night. Yeah, now, see, ridiculous. that's where that's just I could have a good time. You wouldn't really see that, like being from Chicago. Yeah, I go out, out here. There, you I'd cause take a problem. Chicago police come out, they shoot you twice, and then say halt. So yeah, yeah, I just, <laughs> I just it, it doesn't Bobby, happen just out here. Your head, we'll take care of this real quick. <laughs> the American way. Um, Look, I you know I grew up with cops. My dad was a New York City cop. I had an uncle who was one. I have a cousin who recently retired from New York City police. I grew up going to cop picnics, um, and I I have every respect for people who have to put themselves on on the line and maintain order. Uh, that doesn't mean that um, you know we're not allowed to have civil disobedience. I think that's perfectly justified. But you have to use your brains here, and yes. not use it for your own personal. Uh, riot and looting and uh, just to get rich and, and steal from some other person. I mean, these people aren't stealing from the rich. They're stealing from, you know, small shop owners. Yeah, people in their own neighborhoods. I mean, just what's, hardworking, normal people. What started the riot? Now, exactly. so, uh, my depressing. brother was mentioning it yesterday that, uh, that what is it, they're doing these mob, uh, like where they're doing the dance, flash dancing. Uh, flash, flash mobs. Flash mob uh uh, an attack type scenarios, and it's being touted through Twitter or something like that. See, this is where it, where it gets, it gets to. Um, you almost wonder where the source of this is. It, I'm personally thinking that this is just one more avenue to uh, take into consideration, control, monitor, and possibly even disassemble uh, the internet. Um, and that's what my I'm concerns sorry. are. I'm sure that this is uh, 
being looked at. There's no doubt in my mind. Uh, it's a tricky issue. Look, we have we have to balance rights with uh, reasonable amounts of public safety. Uh, I, you know, as all of us here, I mean, we are interested in promoting freedom of speech and freedom of expression, and staying free of government intrusion into our stuff. But look at it on the other side. If if all of us were responsible for law enforcement, and I mean reasonable law enforcement, I'm not talking about. Um, totalitarian intrusion into someone's life, but even on a reasonable, base, reasonable basis, we have to realize that criminals are going to be using those tools. And the question that we have to ask is, how would we uh, deal with that? If you've got criminals, the big thing now is that they're all using blackberries to communicate and um, organize criminal actions. That's probably true. That doesn't mean that the government should be authorized to snoop in on people's blackberries. Right. I guess what I would think is the government should be allowed to have their own damn blackberries to coordinate their counter response. Yeah. Well, uh, it's it's self-evident. What happens is technology is going to be used in, at every level of where it can be beneficial. Good and bad. I mean, and, everyone well, yeah, use it. it's going to be manipulated either way. Unfortunately, right. say for instance in these peace movements, or say for instance any type of protest, like at the. Uh, uh, the G2 summits or the, the, or the um, right. um, anytime they have anything like that, what happens is into the mix of, of the people, the, uh, there are agent provocateurs. Yes, that's right. And that's this right. is a very serious problem. This happens time and time again, and they are caught. And, and, and it's getting to the point now that activists, true activists, are... are are 10 steps ahead or trying to be ahead, knowing uh, the uh, composite of their group and seeing who may very well be a, um, a provocateur. And some of them are actually from the law enforcement community or various agencies. And uh, this is something that, the, that we, the people, have to be aware of. So as we can still maintain our right to assemble, and to uh, and and our right of free speech and protest. Now, Absolutely. here you have uh, a scenario in in um, uh, in England, and it's echoing throughout the world where we have all this mounting social stress and pressure, um, and and some of it warranted, some of it who knows what it what's going on, and I don't think warranted's a scenario here. But again, we have to pay attention to the fact that there are efforts to, to curtail our freedoms and that we can't uh, lose our vigilance over monitoring that as much as the protesters should be in looking out for agent provocateurs. Well, part of it, it's not actually Twitter or nothing like that doing it because you've got to realize oh, no, no, no. these people are already groups because you just don't tweet randomly. All they're doing is communicating through there. Oh, these are premeditated. They're already groups oh, already. Not, it's not as yeah. if it's all well, internet. Yeah. You know, Sam, you're raising a very intriguing point, which is, um, I don't know if anyone in the media has asked this, uh, and I'm not sure if you're saying it explicitly here, but you might be, which is simply, are the London riots being, uh, you know, enhanced by agent provocateurs? Yes. And that is, that's a question, and hell, I mean, the I don't know if we're going to be able to find the answer to that, but it does certainly, uh, it is a reasonable question to ask, and, and uh, the reason is simply that 
we know there's a long history of Ajahn provocateurs throughout all types of protest movements for the past 50 plus years in the U.S. and U.K., probably longer than that. So um, the problem in identifying them is simply these guys are good. They work through many, many cutouts. Let's say it, it's, it's like I'm the CIA guy and, and I wanted to start something up like this. Well, it's not like I just directly talk to these provocateurs. There are layers. I might talk to you. Uh, you might be some, some criminal friend of mine. And then you would have layers. You would have a bunch of lower people that you would talk to and, and you would put the word out. Simple. You know, pass some cash around to incentivize people to do this and that and the other thing. Case closed. Yes. So in other words, there's layer upon layer of deniability so that it would in all likelihood never be traced no. to me, no. uh, you know, over at some agency. Do you understand? Yes. And I think that's how all of this stuff works, or at least a lot of it. Uh, so proving it, even if it looks like it, tastes like it, smells like it, you know, all that, <laughs> proving it in a court of law is going to be next to impossible. The layers of gray are, in, you know, right. are so thick. And, and as the whole idea is to keep your assets at a distance, but yet close enough that at a moment's notice, they could be assembled. Right. And uh, that's where a good network pays off exactly. in any sort of uh, Absolutely. agency. You have a trusted network with enough people, you can make it happen. Exactly. And this is, this is how nations and uh, governments get brought brought down and has happened throughout history it's it's been the uh one of the many beautiful um and very very well uh, orchestrated um, um operatives of of both the cia and other governmental um covert like operations and medieval days and everything oh since yeah you had your town criers that sure, internet <laughs> sure i mean they had their networks of getting information and curtailing it and you know putting the uh, provocateurs in there is is uh, just one other little nice element to, to curb something especially when it comes to our freedoms and we're losing them left and right aren't we yeah yeah and yeah. you know here's something you come from a family of police officers and right. remember the day when when they were called peace officers and then all of a sudden they went to law enforcement. And I think, wasn't it during the 70s? Um, I've always heard peace officer from time to time. But for me, growing up, that was never the uh, the dominant uh, phrase. For me, as a kid, back in the, the 60s and 70s, it was police officers or cops. Yeah, for, for me, it was always yes. police, too. And I was well, it was always that. a peace officer. And then I think it was during the uh, Nixon administration uh, with the drug enforcement that law enforcement took on a different um, a different um, direction. In other words, it was no That's longer... Yeah. yeah. I don't, I don't well, that know that. My, sure. That was my background. Was maybe that one was of my just, majors. Maybe that was just you. No. no. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, what happened is instead of, you know, basically trying to um, take a, a criminal and um, put him through the system and try to um, uh, reform him... Uh, what they decided to do was just punish. So it went from reform to just punish. Well, hell, I mean, if you look at the uh, early first half of the 20th century, I don't see a whole lot of reform in the U.S. Uh, penal system, to be honest with no, you. No, there wasn't. 
<laughs> it was. I mean, you know, it, the whole thing is you take somebody who may have done um, a, a series of uh, maybe um, uh, misdemeanors or something that was a, uh, you know, a, a Class A felony, and they put them in with people who've done Class X murders. They, they, they put them in criminal college is yes. another right. name for criminal prison. college. Yeah. You hit it on the head. Before <laughs> right. you know it, they become hardened criminals. You get somebody out as, you know, going in as an amateur, coming out as a pro. He gets his degree. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and that's it. They I mean, come. it's funny, but it's really true. It is the truth. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. They come out and they have, and the other thing is, by going in, they become hardened criminals, and they walk out already having their network in place. It gives them a And many of them too. an agenda. And uh, and if and with the uh, system already in place in the uh, penal system of, of gangs and all these societies and groups well, like and whatever. That, where was that one where the gang... They already went, got a job. That gang went in there and they killed all their rivals right in prison. Remember that just recently oh, happened? Yeah. Oh, really? Really? Yeah. Wow. Well, it's, it's a frightening thought. Uh, oh, you know, if any of us looks it? around at our society or other, other societies around the world, uh, the level of violence and criminal behavior, it's, uh, it is frightening. And part of it, you can certainly say that uh, like in the UK, what's going on now, a lot of these young people do not have a whole lot of hope. And the potential for this kind of thing is in a lot of the European countries, Spain, uh, Italy, Greece, where we've seen riots. Uh, there's unemployment rates among young, educated people that are upwards of 20% or more. This is almost, I don't know of any uh, precedent in my lifetime, our lifetime, where this has happened. It's a very serious situation where you have young people out of hope. In the UK, just a year or two ago, uh, there were riots that we've heard about in the university world. Tuition was going up. Uh, job opportunities were, were lower, and, and these people, these kids, were frustrated and were uh, demonstrating and rioting, not like this. But there's, a, there's an undercurrent that does, um, you know, underlie all of this, which is that there is not a whole lot of opportunity that is perceived down there or is there. And so what are these people going to do if they don't have a way into the upward mobility of, of a society, then they opt out, uh, you know, economically and in their minds, they're out of it. They don't participate in that culture. And you've got a whole lot of alienated young people and not just the UK, but here in the United States, and really, I think throughout much of the world. Oh, hands down, the yeah. the, the social equation has to be reformulated, and this is the problem. Look at what we have. We have, first of all, uh, a devaluing of of currency. We have uh, we have enough stuff out there. I don't know how much more stuff we need uh, that we we can't have too many people making stuff. We have to realize that maybe um, a commodity uh, or a way to earn a living or, or what is money or value has to, we have to rethink the whole social um, phenomena of what is currency, what is a commodity, uh, the symbiotic relationship of, of that, and, and we need to do it. Well, at a fundamental level, I'll never forget this. I was, uh, this is about 25 years ago, I was uh, a young guy walking. I had just arrived in Rochester, where I'm still living. I was a young grad student uh, at the University of Rochester, probably 23, 24, and I was just out. Out one Friday night, uh, walking through the city, uh, 
just observing and thinking, and the thought had occurred to me that this is now in the mid-1986, 87 at the latest, and I thought, what happens if mechanization of our economy and our world continues so that there just literally is worldwide structural unemployment of 20, 25, 30, 50 percent. In other words, there literally are not enough jobs for the people and they have nothing to do. Because even in the 80s, I was aware that there were nations in this world where there was structural unemployment of 25 percent every single year. I had just been studying um, some economies in North Africa where uh, this was the case. In Algeria, there was like 25-30% every year. What do you do in that situation where there's no chance of a job? Well, you become a radical, you become disenchanted, you become a criminal, right? Whatever. Well, guess what? Guess what? In the United States, official unemployment has been at 9-10% for a long time, and in fact, it's way higher than that. We all know it's we're hitting close to 20% realistically projected to go in the United higher. States. Yep. And in these other countries, you have as well a high percentage of unemployment. And really, we have to wonder, are these people ever going to get anything better than the equivalent of a $9, 10 buck an hour job at like Target? If, if you're lucky enough to get that. That's why they go back yeah. to stealing. Yeah, and that's the thing. We have to reinvent ourselves. In other words, the system that we bought into, imagine this. Uh, you, do you know, say, for instance, you buy a securities, you have disclosure. You have, I don't know how many inches of, of paperwork you have to fill out. I know just recently, just for a life insurance policy, 27 pages. And who knows other disclosures and contracts. How much disclosure do we have when we are initiated into a system that has so many pitfalls and so many... Uh, so many things and that, that you would never even uh, had a glimpse about or, or could ever have even imagined, but yet your life is entrenched in it. There is no disclosure. We're bought into it. We come into this with our umbilical cord attached to a system a, that is so flawed on so many levels, that is prehistoric, that has to be rethought. The ingenuity, the creativity that, that is needed to be uh, thrown into this system. We need a rebirth of, of a redefining of what is a commodity, what is value, what is the objective. Is it just the you know we we it's it's I'm going to be going to a place and giving my time, receiving a currency that is that is at the uh, whim of how many different other uh, uh, indexes and. Um, instruments that could could destroy it, de deflate it, and have no future, and you compile it, and it disappears in a false market. And a, it, it's a flaw. It's it's it a flaw, me, uh, a huge flaw. Like you want to write an article on this? I'm serious. Uh, this is this is a major, you know, under uh, a major thought here that you've got, and I think uh, hell, write an article on it. My my fundamental insight on this is is simply that there are. Uh, you know, too many people for, for the decent jobs that are available. We have an imbalance. You know, 200 years ago, 300 years ago in, in North America, in, in the U.S., when it was colonial and, and then the young United States, there was a perennial labor shortage. Uh, in other words, there were, there were constantly, there was a constant shortage of labor in this country, which meant that labor was paid better in the United States and anywhere else in the world, which is why so many millions of people came here. 
That's why there was all this opportunity. And the other thing was, uh, while there was constant westward expansion, if you were not happy being paid what you were in Boston or New York or Baltimore or whatever, you can go west. And yeah, it was tough. Uh, it wasn't really a, necessarily an easy life, but you had the freedom to do it. You could shake the dust off your boots and just go west. Now, that was then. Today, that, that situation is long gone, of course. And what we have is a labor surplus in general. There are specific occupations where there, there are labor shortages. But overall, in the global, in the U.S. and the global workforce, there is a vast glut of human bodies. And there is nothing for these people to do, realistically. And in that That's type of situation, yeah. the employers and, and the governments have all the advantages. They can, uh, you know, look for overqualified people uh, going through their resumes. They can uh, ask all kinds of intrusive questions of applicants that would never have uh, flown in decades and generations before, but they can do it now because there's a complete glut of labor market and the I don't know how to to overcome that other than through long-term um, you know realignment of that so that the labor market becomes smaller and that the labor pool then has more leverage well that's the that is the only alternative in the system that's designed my thing is that we don't need revolution we need revelation we need to rethink rethink what is value what is currency what is necessity well what, how do you how what how do you determine that uh, okay other than say for instance demand sam honestly uh, okay. you know if there's a if there's a demand a product will be valued if um right and if there's a limited yes. supply for great demand you'll have great value if you have a lot of supply and not a lot of demand guess what that product will not be valued i don't see any other a simpler way to deal with the question of value. Right. Now, what is a value? Well, this word that you create a supply and demand. Preservation is also, also industry. Preservation, conservation, reclamation. We have infrastructures falling apart left and right. We have, a, we have cities that are, tr are crumbling before our very eyes. Yes, indeed. Now, we yes. don't have, under the certain constraints of, of what we have as far as the marketplace, uh, and this is what always seems to happen right before major wars and major renovation does take place. Uh, right. Look at historical, the historical situation. And, and, and I find it very interesting that if you look at history forensically, you could almost see that almost almost a valuing or a timing of, of why a, a necessity of war comes into play or where it is in play. Or in those communities that need renovation, they are bombed, they are destroyed. Where uh, uh, new systems of, of marketplace need to be put in place and maybe they were difficult in, in creating that are destroyed. Right. Well, I agree. And, and really what we're saying, what we have needed in this country for uh, more than a generation is a massive infrastructure investment. Um, high speed, uh, you know, uh, internet, uh, better highways, better bridges, uh, a rail system that's actually worth a damn in this country. All of this, um, we're talking 
a trillion dollar investment would really cover it and do a magnificent job. Um, and it's just there's no there's no likelihood that this is going to happen. Instead, what we've done is piss our money, our wealth away on a couple of wars which have done exactly what? I'll tell Nothing. you what they've done. The war in Iraq was fought for one reason, only one reason, and that was to expropriate $30 trillion worth of oil that was in that country, that is there, that was controlled by the government of Iraq and no longer is controlled. Now it's been all sold off. By the way, not to U.S. corporations, but to multinational firms. In other words, U.S. taxpayers have, have blown our money. U.S. soldiers have gotten killed and killed, laid waste to a country. And for what cause? So that multinational corporations can own $30 trillion worth of oil. That is it. Afghanistan is all about natural gas, all about natural resources in that region. Um, and so it's all the same thing. None of this benefits the U.S. taxpayer or consumer who has, uh, or citizen rather, who has borne the brunt of this. And instead, what we could have done with all that money is improve our own country yes. and ensure our own uh, viability for the next century, or at least the next 50 years, as, uh, as something better than a second-rate economy. And the other thing is we would have been perceived as the country that we should be instead of the ugly American that we have we have come to fulfill. Absolutely. And Absolutely. here and it's it's complete a leadership. Yes. A, a the lack of vision and lack of vision. Uh, you know, it, it could have this could have started in the Clinton years. I think it should have started in the Clinton years. It absolutely should have occurred during the Bush years. Uh, of the last decade, and that's that's when things really spun out of control because that's post nine eleven. That's all these wars. No matter what you believe, even on nine eleven, and I think uh, anyone who's listened to to me and to to you and anyone else on our show uh, understands that we do under that we believe nine eleven was an inside operation in one way or another. Yes. Even so, even if you don't believe that. If you take the standard model, uh, the propaganda, the lie that al-Qaeda did it, even so, it has to be understood that the U.S. response is vastly out of proportion to what happened. You have 3,000-plus uh, people dying in the U.S. on that day. And what, what did we do in response? We trashed our own economy in response. <laughs> That'll teach them. That is what we did. We laid waste to Iraq. We have not done a damn thing in Afghanistan that's worth noting. Uh, the Taliban are ready to roll as soon as we pull out. So what exactly has the U.S. done after 10 years? It's accomplished nothing. We, we've fallen into the same trap. a lot more people. We've fallen into the same trap that destroyed the Soviet Union when they invaded Afghanistan in, in, uh, in December 1978. And we didn't learn a single damn lesson from that. All right. So in other words, 9-11 was a tragedy, a tragedy no matter how you look at it. But the U.S. response was simply to get pissed and to spend enormous amounts of money that we cannot, could never afford to spend. And we, have, we are paying the price for this idiocy. On a sheer national policy, the wars we have fought are, are lunacy. They, they have no, uh, there's no logic unless you see these wars as not a, an American 
interest, but something for international financial interest using U.S. military as their police force. Then it makes sense. Yes, and that's then, a, then, it, then it makes sense. It's the it only rational, right? I mean, yeah. that's the only rational way. When you come out of it, look at it forensically. Look at it, um, you know, as who had the motive? Who, who, who benefit in the end? That could be the criminal. Let's look at it forensically. We didn't benefit. Right. We didn't way. benefit. The American public, our the American person, died. got his ass kicked. How many of our our economy is destroyed? How many people them? got killed? We've ruined our reputation. We've ruined our economy, and we've done so in the in, in because you know in waving the the flag made in China, uh, <laughs> supporting a nas- a false nationalism, a false flag right. most likely event. And the other thing is to put the cherry on the cake. You know, here we had the the so-called mastermind murdered by the SEALs Team 6, who now could never tell us the story <laughs> of what really transpired, can we? Mm-hmm. That's very interesting, too. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, exactly correct. The, the, you know, another thing, I don't want to be bouncing around too much here, but this is all related. Um, the, the recent degrading of the United States from a triple-A credit by Standard & Poor's to a double-A-plus. All of this um, is a direct result of the shenanigans that went on between the Obama administration and the Republican opposition in Congress over uh, raising the debt ceiling, as I'm sure many people have been familiar with. And however you want to side with Obama or the Republicans on this, um, what what angers me what has angered me throughout all of this is the Republican intransigence on cutting, rather on not cutting, U.S. military money. This is absurd. Uh, if you want to cut spending and you don't want to raise taxes, but you don't want to cut military spending, well, where the hell are you going to cut it? Um, the only amount of discretionary funding that there is is military. Yes. So security, you can try cutting it, but you've got to pass a whole series of other laws. Social Security has been mandated for a long time. Military spending uh, is is discretionary. Um, I mean, most of it is. I mean, veterans payments and things like that are not. But the military budget is discretionary, and and the Republicans have this has been off limits. Now, the last deal that was cut, they have left it open so that they would consider military cuts. But, I mean, it's been so difficult. And to me, it's been the single most obvious place for the United States to try to balance its budget is in this outflow, this hemorrhaging of money that is going into the Pentagon. Um, just a decade ago, we were at uh, about $300 billion. The first year, uh, 2001, just before 9/11, the U.S. military budget was 310 billion, and we're—I don't know what it is now. We're about double that, and that's money yeah. that we know of. There's, that's the money. Yeah, that's there's really a lot horrible. of the secretive money that we don't know well, about too. <laughs> totally agreed. Uh, but on the official basis, it, this is—it's absolutely out of control. There was a study done just a year ago by the Washington Post of all places. I mean, the most mainstream of the mainstream. But they did an outstanding three-part article on uh, by Dana Priest and uh, Bill Arkin, two very fine journalists, on the U.S. intelligence community, uh, stating that it's an out-of-control situation. This isn't the Pentagon specifically, but it's related. And what they said is, uh, we don't know, we truly don't have a handle on how much money 
is in this community, how many people it employs, and certainly we can't get an idea of whether it's making America any safer. Didn't look like it. No, so no, have it as an intel community that's out of control, and it's the same with the Pentagon. Absolutely, the whole community. If, if you have, if you constantly, in fact, if we're in a constant state of war, the only benefactors here, are, of course, the stockholders of of the military industrial complex and and right. and the employees themselves. Now that only goes to a certain end. Uh, the owners, the larger um, ownership, is where it's at. The other thing is. If that's the case, where we're constantly kicking the dog and assured to have those wars to warrant um, the constant spending and, and development and manufacturing of weapons of, of uh, both mass destruction and uh, just the conventional war warfare uh, uh, machinery we need, be it guns, bullets, whatever. You know, right. the thing is, this is... Uh, this is this is the enemy. This is the greatest threat to national security, uh, where we are being thrown out there, uh, being vulnerable by who knows what, who's our next enemy. And if they're doing it terrestrially, and if we are involved in something out in space, can right. they also be doing this on a grander scale? And that is a degree of, of concern and fright that takes this into another realm. Yes, indeed. Uh, very good point. You know, we've been talking about conventional politics all this time, uh, but I just uh, uh, made a couple of presentations in the last few weeks um, offering my own reasons for why I do believe there is a secret space program, a clandestine uh, military presence in, in Earth orbit and very likely beyond. Uh, it, it's in the context of also, you know, knowing that NASA has been uh, paring down and ending its manned uh, space shuttle flights, as we've all been hearing about. So it seems as if the U.S. is in a kind of uh, retreat from space. And what I'm thinking is that this is actually not the case at all, that uh, NASA really is irrelevant to the equation. Yeah, I, Keep in mind I think so that domination of space is absolutely essential to the U.S. military, and it has been for, for over 20 years now. Uh, after all, the victories in the Gulf War 20 years ago could not have been thinkable, would have been unthinkable without U.S. domination of space as the true platform where it all mattered. There's been a number of military studies done on this. In other words, the center of gravity for the first time in history moved to uh, beyond the Earth's atmosphere, at least in terms of warfare. Uh, because by controlling space, you control all the satellites that were able to give those B-2 stealth bombers the pinpoint uh, information that they needed to make their hits on, on the enemy. Uh, so what that means is that any military enemies in the future will know that to fight with the big boys, you've got to knock out the enemy satellites, which means you've got a whole, you've got the weaponization of space. And that is a given. So that by itself tells you that the U.S. military will never leave space, no. ever. No, that's and something and what do we hear, though, about the U.S. military presence in space? Next to nothing. We hear next to nothing about it. And that frightens me because, I, I, again, with that mindset, if they're kicking the dog here on Earth to assure that they are constantly going to be needed and have this, <laughs> this uh, uh, you know, uh, flow of constant flow of money and power 
and, and really, I, I think it's more about power, you know, uh, than anything else. Because if you have the power, you control the currency and everything else. Isn't China quite involved in space now, too? Yes, that's right. And that, I mean, yeah. we're not just going to drop out as they start taking no. over. I mean, that's just, our country's not like that. No, but I think we have a program. I don't know if it's, do you feel it's it's international that the program that, that may be ultimately at play is a international program, or is it, do you feel, uh, only international within the constraints of only a few uh, participating countries? Well, what I think is it's international in terms of the money involved, the private money involved. Uh, I'm not really sure it's international in terms of nations. Uh, I, I'm not certain. What I My sense of this, at least up to now, is that you've had a lot of... Uh, major financial sources that are global, not just American, that nonetheless have used primarily the U.S. military infrastructure for its, for its purposes. That's my, my um, assessment of it. In other, in other words, the U.S. military um, is still bigger and badder than that of you know, the next number of a whole bunch of other militaries following combined. And so if you were a multi- a billion or trillion dollar interest and you wanted to manipulate events around the world, who are you going to go to? Well, you, you want the U.S. military to do the job for you. They do the best work. They have the best resources. <laughs> best uh, you're not going to go to the, even the Russian or Chinese military. You're going to want the U.S. military. You want U.S. policy to work on your behalf. And this is why I think that the U.S. government and the U.S. military have become tools of international financial interests because they're the biggest plum in the world. You control the U.S. military policy and you control everything. So I think what we've seen is, uh, and, uh, is, is that, plus now on, when you're talking about a secret space program, um, ditto, I think that international financial interests have been using the U.S. infrastructure to create a secret space program. And, and I don't think that that program is necessarily under a whole lot of presidential control, if any. No. I think what you have are these special access programs right. that are somehow there's been a legal end run around everything to allow them to, to be beholden to private, not public interests. So it's being done, I'm guessing, mostly by Americans, because that's where the action is. But it's being controlled not by U.S. policy, but rather by those people around the world with money. So on this note, I think we should stay on top of it and, you know, keep yeah. heading back at this and bring this front this and center. This is actually a good conversation. It's right? very good information. And, uh, you know, uh, here you are talking about this secret space program at multiple events. Well, you know that something has to be going on. Right. Hey, give oh, me a sure. break. America is not just going to drop out of space. No, you know, just no. not going to no. happen. No, no. It's, uh, it's it's a facade. You we know, have get an e rid of we the got an ego. Um, was what oh, it is sure. too. You know, <laughs> you and I may separate on on one opinion here, and and that being that I personally feel that are events that these may be precursors or say indications. If we were to connect the dots, uh, that that we should pay attention and should be on our toes as to worldly events that are going to change space the course of history. I believe something's going to happen big yes. time in space all of if a sudden. If you're not taking care of your infrastructure, not really giving a hoot, if you let your economy basically fall apart and you right. have all this unrest across the board, 
and you have all this uh, concern about tailoring back on things. Uh, NASA, for one, getting out of space. Uh, the other thing is SETI isn't getting funding, uh, future funding for barking at the stars anymore <laughs> because, you know, uh, something may be coming here to knock on our door. There are, there are so many indications that if, if you were to keep that in back of your mind and say, well, look at this, then look at this, then look at this, well, maybe in 2012 we may have some events that are going to change the course of humanity. Now you think part of SETI being shut down might be because they know something's about to happen and they don't want those ears turned on? Yeah, it might blow your ears out or yeah. like, who cares? Who wants to bark? Let's yeah, just. Uh, well, SETI's ridiculous as yeah. it is, but. Yeah, well, take maybe, away the doorbell uh, and look, the phone. I, I don't rule out that uh, there are some potentially huge events coming our way. Uh, and you can look in any part of the world you want, whether financial. Uh, we're not out of the financial woods by any means. In fact, we're like a ship that seems to be teetering and ready to, to go under with so much ballast underneath it. Right. Then you've got uh, these events and people getting very worked up over, uh, for example, Elanine now is, is the big news. And yes, we just heard uh, again from, I believe, Richard Hoagland that Elanine's closest approach to the sun is on September 11th, 2011, 10 years after the 9-11. Whether that means a thing that means I'm still Al not Al convinced, to be way. honest with you. Well, as you see how I dragged you into this, I'm, I'm well, trying the, to the, coax uh, you to talk more about what did Richard actually say? What, well, what, he, he, what did he say? He spoke for four hours in Leeds, started a half hour late, got in there at 8.30 and went till 12.30, and there was no way I was going to stay up. I had, uh, I had no intention. I had to get up early for a BBC interview the next morning and... Uh, I knew his whole bit on Elanine was coming at the very end, so I, I bagged it. So I can't tell you. Okay, well, I heard he, it. Four hours. I, you know, look, I'm sorry. But there's <laughs> four hours of Richard, right? <laughs> I'm going to have. Yeah, it's true. Well, so much dedication I'm going to have. In a hot room with no air conditioning, uh, late at night when I hadn't had dinner. No. Well, I'll tell you <laughs> what, we, we will reserve our Elanine conversation to, uh, so we all could be on on uh, the some right. uh, the same page to some degree and right. uh, maybe we could put this uh, sh should we table that to next week maybe guys what do you think yeah sounds good to me thank you very much richard dolan everybody we'll be right back you're listening to threshold radio I'm Richard Dolan. You're listening to Threshold Radio. TheEdgeOnAir.com and Thresholds into Other Realms present Thresholds Radio, a weekly show dedicated to all things paranormal. Join your hosts, Sam Moranto, John Stevenson, and Anthony Kopp, Fridays from 10 to 11 p.m. for an expedition beyond your most unexplainable dreams. With new guests every week, Thresholds Radio will bend your views on reality. That's Friday nights, 10 to 11 on TheEdgeOnAir.com. For more info on Thresholds Radio, visit UFO-info. You're listening to Threshold Radio. I'm Anthony Kay. With me is Sam Moranto and John Stevenson. We have Sean on the phone right now. Sean from the uh, North Woods of Wisconsin, and we haven't had him on for a while. Uh, I know he's one of our most beloved witnesses because he does have a couple interesting cases. 
uh, some of which scared the hell out of me in the last past uh, previous episodes. Um, if you want to hear a couple of uh, Sean's stories, go to our first couple shows. They are very, very interesting cases. Remember that during that period of time, it was last year, where a lot of green uh, UAPs, unidentified aerial phenomena, was being seen up in your area also, in uh, right. down here where I called up uh, uh, one of the lodges that we do some work at. Uh, the lady goes and says, what was that green thing in my backyard? Remember right. I told you about that? Now tell us what Ellie's uh, uh, friend, your daughter's friend, said when he was coming up your way. I believe he's seen one. What was it that happened? All he says, you know, this green thing came out of the woods, kind of shot out across the highway, and he he knows it wasn't, you know, the eyes of an animal or anything like, you know, to like that effect. But he said it just kind of freaked him out. He says, "What the hell was that?" <laughs> that would do it. <laughs> like, well, I don't know. I mean, I've seen them before, but I don't know what the hell they are. Yeah, Sean's like, been there, done that. <laughs> yeah. Now, but, well, look at that, that time, you know, like when, when uh, Vic was up here, I mean, the whole upstairs turned, you know, bright green. <laughs> and he had no idea what that was. Uh, no, he was sitting downstairs in a recliner watching out the picture window. Yeah, we were upstairs, yeah, we were upstairs sleeping in Allie's room. And the whole stairs we were, turned we green. Had, at that point, we were exhausted it was like a relief to have Real somebody bright. here and they were going to be up all night so we hey we crashed out you know and uh i got up about 2 two thirty, something like that to go to the bathroom and i walked by the chair you know and kind of waved my hand in front of his face and he's like yeah i'm awake I'm like holy shit <laughs> and uh, he's like hey uh don't don't turn the lights on up there anymore I'm like what he's don't don't turn on the lights up there it's hard for my eyes to to adjust you know I'm like, well, we've been sleeping, dude. I didn't turn on any, any lights. I said, well, just a minute. I hollered upstairs, and I had to wake Robin up. I said, hey, don't turn on the lights anymore. And he, she's like, I haven't even been up. Well, Vic said they came on one time, like 15 minutes. And uh, he said, it was in the bedroom. The, the, light, the light was coming from the bedroom. And uh, he said, like, 200-watt bulbs. And uh, he said, then it came on again for maybe three four minutes. Very strange, and I know he had he was he was so freaked, so spooked that he left. Oh, he's there just what one and a half days or two days, whatever it Not was. Not even. He was here like uh, fourteen hours. See, he did a good job with him. He just he was, yeah, he was actually he was going to come up for like forty-eight hours, you know, two days, mm -hmm. and uh, he made it about fourteen hours. And I thought, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Well, that's remember I chewed your ass out. I'm like, hey, don't even bother me anymore. I thought he, you know. I thought, Vic, ah, yeah, these people are nuts, you know, I have no reason to be here, you know. And he just bailed, he bailed out without, any, without even saying anything to us. Yeah. Oh, he was totally no, freaked out. Me anymore. No, no, that wasn't it, man. Vic was so freaked out that he, yep. he didn't want to stay anymore. No, he, he was getting sensations of numbness and tingling and all this unusual stuff that he felt was, you know, more than likely associated with uh, electromagnetic anomalous oh, yeah. well that's when uh, he he was doing his little little you know his little professor things you know he brought out just a simple compass and was moving around on the deck had it, just laid it down on the deck floor of the deck and he was kind of moving around with his foot you know and he all of a sudden a needle would you know spin over to a, an area and he's like what the heck you know he's like, hmm his you know his uh, German kind of sounding professor away. <laughs> he moved over a little bit more, and it would go back normal, you know, north. And then 
he'd moved around and boop, it'd spin back over here. And he's like, huh. I'm like, I, so I got down on my hands and knees. And I'm like, well, it's it's doing it by every deck screw. And he's like, huh. I said, well, is that normal? He's like, uh, no. <laughs> so we checked everything. Everything around here that was metal was magnetic. I said, well, is that normal? He's like, ah, no. <laughs> <laughs> now, when you had uh, your experience with the creature in the tree, the uh, tree crawler, we called it. Yep. Now, you were able to see this thing you were able to see it, correct? Up, up close and personal. And how would I mean, you, how would you describe it? Uh, if it would have been any closer or any more personal, I'd have uh, been kissing it. <laughs> oh, there's a scary And how <laughs> big, compared to the tree, was this thing? Well, if it came, if it, it looked, like I said before, it looked like a pocosimus. And it looked like it was coming from the top of the tree down, so nose down. And if it was a third of the way down the tree... The end of it was up out of the tree, up beyond the top of the tree. And, and these trees are like, I don't know, 60 feet tall, 70 feet tall. And the movie that you had, it seemed to be translucent. Yeah, that, that, I don't know if it was that thing or if that was another, uh, another thing. Um, okay. It could have been, been those things. I, I, okay, the other the thing you're thinking about is the spindly thing. And explain that one. The um, well, or th there was that one. The one thing across the uh, when we were at your place, I showed you that video, and it was like we were looking across the valley at the trees, and everybody's like, oh, "Okay, I don't see anything." And then all of a sudden, you went, "Wow!" <laughs> so I had to rewind it, and it it was like if the trees in the prevailing wind blew east, and the trees bent to the east, all of a sudden something went, and the trees kind of in one little area looked like they moved to the to the west but the trees didn't move it was just a like a glassy translucent thing move you know like like, like predator. predator like the predator like predator from the arnie movie i would not want to meet the predator yeah well that's what it looked like uh, looking and, and being are two it, different we wanted, remember we showed oh, it we watched time. it over and over again everybody was just yeah pretty people were, oh yeah i see it you know and then farland when he was up there he actually saw it and he yeah. felt that it was coming towards him, and well, it was conscious of him looking at it through well, the binoculars. Remember, well, he showed me the pictures of his, um, his uh, whatever you have, camera traps or whatever that he sets up. And then he was just you know, like, well, this is, this is a picture of going in the driveway at my mom and dad's ranch or whatever, you know. And, and I'm like, well, what the hell is that? Well, up above the driveway, off over the edge by the trees... Here's this thing that looked like a big wire, like little thin wires, but like a jellyfish up in the air. Hmm. I said, what the hell is that? He's like, I don't know, man. I never noticed it. Yeah. But it looks just like it would have that same look as to like what was in the trees out here. Now, you were saying there was, um, at one time, there was this thing in the trees, and it was shooting out something that looked like tinsel and it would unwind and wrap itself yeah, like, around the branches. Yeah, it was like uh, like garland, like rope garland. Garland, excuse me. And yeah. uh, it it was the weirdest shit. I don't know. It was like, like I tell you, it'd shoot out this garland type stuff and it would create like a webbing. Well, I watched it one time real close and it shot this piece of garland stuff out, like a rope. It shot out and it, it the end of it was like the tip of it was a lot like they can control the tip of it 
and it went out and it just like a vine like say um those little vines that are grow on cucumbers how they wrap around little things you know to grip grip on right well that's that's what it did it went out and just that tip of it wrapped around the branch and then on that garland looked like curls of um like if you planed a piece of wood with a planer like curls like that and those curls popped and more of those little fingers of garland shot out of them curls and wrapped around other branches and it just kept doing that bam, 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 bam. And pretty soon boom that light was gone it just just covered that light right over so the illumination that you were seeing was actually cloaking itself by covering itself up like that. Yep, it used these things like a like a webbing to cover itself up. Now was that pretty much like the pine ball that you were talking about? The what? When it got done, did it look like the pine ball that you were um, talking yeah, about? Yeah, well just yeah, exactly. It got you know, like I said, it just kinda looked like branches of the trees all like if you look through a bunch of trees you'd just see how they, you know, crisscross and all that. That's basically what it started to look like, you know. Now, one of the other things you mentioned were these little creatures in the trees that seemed to stop moving. But, yep. And they, what did they look like? Well, there were a couple different types. There was, like, the ones that were, the pine, the ball of pine balls, where the, the Pocosmos thing would camouflage itself like a ball of pine balls. Um, I was watching it one day, and it, it looked as if that ball of pine balls got jammed in the trees, like it, it got stuck. And you know, I thought, okay, whatever. So I, you know, put the binoculars down and dinked around with something. I looked back again, and holy shit, there were these little things that looked like I boy, it's hard to even <laughs> uh, like little green uh, cicada type things, but they were you know bigger than a little bug. These these things are pretty good size. And it's like they got out of that thing and were trying to move it and when they when they noticed i was looking at them, whoop, they just froze and you know i kind of like what the hell i dropped binoculars for a second you know down and rubbed my eyes like what the hell is that i looked again and they weren't there how big were they i'd say a foot tall and they looked like cicadas i thought you had mentioned grasshoppers or something yeah there was some other ones that looked like um yeah like praying mantis okay um, those were down on the ground. And how big were they? Um, well, the, I suppose at that time the weeds were maybe two, three, maybe three feet tall, and they were, they would poke their heads up above those weeds, and how the, the wind would blow the weeds, you know, and kind of sway the weeds. They actually would do that, like they would sway back and forth to kind of mimic, and you know, camouflage themselves, but. Yeah, they, they weren't doing that good of a job. I mean, you could see them. Now, one thing I was mentioning about the, the the one creature in particular, that when that placosimus type thing was around, the deer would know that it appeared to know that it was present. You know what? It's really kind of funny you mention that. When that when the, when that was all going on, very seldom. I don't think. I don't think we even had any deer come through the backyard. Hmm. Well, look at that. I have that one story that the editor of the paper sent me that, um, you know, winter, uh, two feet of snow on the ground around the people's house, no footprints, and 11 feet up on a flat roof, they find a dead deer. Because they and, fly. 
It, it was one of Santa's. <laughs> and no, no visible or apparent reason why this this deer was dead. I and wonder if it had a red nose. <laughs> and here it is up on top of the roof, you know. I think Not, Blitzen had it in for Rudolph, and he just I mean, bumped his ass off. That's pretty strange. I mean, how, how many times do people find a deer laying on an 11-foot flat roof uh, dead? Yeah, that's crazy, man. Crazy. And that was in town. Chance in there, yeah. Crazy. Yeah. And the people were like, you know, in their 70s. So it wasn't like they did it. And <laughs> some 70 year old guy flung it up there. Hey, honey, what are we going to do tonight? Let's go get some roadkill and throw that's, it on top of the roof. Screw that. Let's fling poo. Let's go deer flinging. <laughs> but see, like, like you just said there, roadkill. This thing had no visible wounds or, you know, somebody, they took it off the roof and, and cut it open and they could not figure out why this thing was dead. Good eats. Good eats, yeah. <laughs> uh, very unusual. Well, you haven't seen anything recently, though, have you, Sean? As far um, as creatures, we, like I told Sam, I, we've just tried to stay to ourselves and not really pay any attention to it. All right, thank you very much. That was Sean, everybody. Now, like I said, if you want to hear more of his cases, please uh, listen to our first couple shows. They are very intense. Uh, we'll be right back. You're listening to Threshold Radio. TheEdgeOnAir.com and Thresholds into Other Realms present Thresholds Radio, a weekly show dedicated to all things paranormal. Join your hosts Sam Moranto, John Stevenson, and Anthony Kopp Fridays from 10 to 11 p.m. for an expedition beyond your most unexplainable dreams. With new guests every week, Thresholds Radio will bend your views on reality. That's Friday nights 10 to 11 on TheEdgeOnAir.com. For more info on Thresholds Radio, visit UFO-info. I'm Richard Dolan. You're listening to Threshold Radio. You're listening to Threshold Radio. We have Michael Clean on the phone with us right now. What's up, Mike? Well, uh, we got something real interesting for you guys today. I've got uh, the top 10 most tragic disasters in Illinois. Oh, I just did one of my pants <laughs> <a little> earlier. <laughs> it sounds like... <laughs> That's TMI. <laughs> uh, number 11 was Sam's uh, doo-doo in his pants. <laughs> Sam doo-doo that all the time. <laughs> yeah, that's why I always carry underwear with me. That's more than we need to know. I know. This is on the radio, you know. I know. I know. Go ahead. There's three or four well, people be- that listen to this. Before I begin, let's say listening. that these disasters are very tragic, and we should never forget the... The victims or the the heroes who tried to rescue them. So well, let's so, keep that in mind. So we as can't we, laugh. Uh, you mean we go down the list? Okay. <laughs> no one tried to rescue me. Damn it. <laughs> uh, so number ten was the 1946 Naperville train disaster. Some of you may remember that or have heard of it. Uh, this occurred on the afternoon of April 26, 1946, and there was a uh, an engineer of a a uh, train called the Advanced Flyer that made an un- unscheduled stop at the Naperville station to check his running gear. And unfortunately, there was another passenger train called the Expedition Flyer. That didn't make a stop. Uh, that came barreling towards him at 85 miles an hour. And by the time they realized what was happening, it was too late. Uh, the resulting collision destroyed both trains and killed 47 passengers uh, and injured around 125. Ooh. So... There is some reported hauntings at this site. Uh, there was a building 
that was owned by a company named Kroller, a furniture manufacturer that became a makeshift morgue. And so there have been ghosts uh, seen in and around that building. What type of, uh, what type of specters are they? Well, uh, people say that they've seen at the, the crossing near where it happened, uh, see shadowy figures walking around, you know, the usual type of things. Uh, they feel unsettled in the area. Okay, number nine, uh, the 1887 Chatworth train wreck. Uh, this is in Chatworth, Illinois, or rather outside of it. That's why it's uh, called the Chatworth train wreck, right? Right. Okay. Uh, a lot of these are named after the locations where they take place, uh, strangely enough. Imagine that. <laughs> so this occurred uh, on a hot summer night. Uh, actually, um, just a few days from now will be the anniversary. Uh, it happened on August 10th, 1887. And this was a train full of 700 passengers who were going to Niagara Falls. Uh, now, this bridge that it was crossing uh, outside of Chatworth was... Um, partially burned uh, because they had done a controlled burning in the area and apparently they never bothered to check if it went out or not so <laughs> when the uh, so the first it. the first engine it made it across the bridge safely but then the trestle collapsed under the second one causing a chain reaction oh my and all of the wooden passenger cars sort of cascaded into each other oh. now there's a quote I have from the Chicago Times here it says, uh, the groans of men and the screams of women united to make an appalling sound, and above all could be heard the agonizing cries of little children, as in some instances they lay pinned alongside their dead parents. Oh, God. So it was a very horrific disaster. Uh, so 85 passengers were killed, and between oh. 169 and 372 were injured. This is actually one of the worst train wrecks in United States history. Uh, for some reason... Illinois has had some of the worst disasters in the country's history. I'm oh, not really? sure why that that would be, but uh, well, we I, seem to attract them. My dad works at the train station. <laughs> I would say lucky, well, not but then. in this instance, that would not be. I heard the Titanic actually was in Lake Michigan. Yeah, <laughs> close to it. Well, you know, actually, there are no ship disasters on this list, which uh, is something I should have thought well, of. Well, what about the uh, Eastland? The Eastland disaster. Oh, that's right. That the was Eastland's a terrible Island. disaster. Okay. Number eight is the St. Anthony's Hospital Fire in Effingham. Anthony's. Anthony's. Uh, St. Anthony's. St. Anthony's opened on September 15th, 1877. Day and after it was run birthday. by the, uh, the Hospital Sisters of St. Francis, who their mission it was to care for the sick and poor in rural Illinois. So these nuns set up this hospital and they would come out, you know, in their habits and everything, and they would uh, they would care for the local residents. Well, unfortunately, uh, on April 4th, 1949, there was a fire that totally decimated the hospital. Dude. Um, between 74 and 77 people, including 10 newborn babies, were killed. Ah. Uh, now, there was a woman, a 22-year-old nurse named Fern Riley, who refused to leave the nursery and died alongside the newborns. So she was sort of a hero in that situation. Uh, There was also a man, the superintendent, who perished when he ran back into the burning building to try to rescue his wife. So this is a a huge disaster in Effingham history. The hospital was rebuilt in 1952. 
So there's one from downstate. I don't, I don't really like this top ten list today. I'm getting, <laughs> this is depressing. And, you know, this you is said a very you were depressing depressed list. this morning. Jeez. Didn't, John was very depressed <laughs> no, this morning. No, I'm sad. <laughs> well, hey, what's the next one? It's, you know, it's good to remember the yeah. perseverance of the communities who came back from, from some of these incidents. One, the next one is from Chicago, and it's one that you probably all are aware of. This was the Our Lady of Angel School Fire. Uh, this was a Catholic elementary school in Chicago uh, that was serving predominantly Italian, uh, this Italian-American neighborhood on the west side. Uh, it was a large institution with around 1,600 students. And, of course, on December 1st, 1958, uh, the fire tore through the school, uh, killing 92 students and three nuns, and it injured over 100. This was now the third worst school disaster in American history. Uh, now, of course, the exterior of the school was brick, but the interior was mainly wood. And uh, for some reason, its floors had been buffed with a flammable wax. So when the fire began Damn. in the basement trash bin, uh, it just quickly spread throughout the entire uh, school. I think it was arson, wasn't there? As I recall this as a child, and it haunted huh. me, and this is the absolute truth. I'm not kidding. Um, this was near to a lot of family members. They lived up that way, and I believe they had some of my cousins in school that day too. So it was. Oh really? Uh, oh yeah. It it was a very um, traumatic event uh, mm -hmm. for our family. Um, I don't think we lost any family members in it, but friends uh, of my cousins and. Isn't that the place you used to play with matches? In the no, basement? there's a boy. There was a, <laughs> as I recall, wasn't there a kid that started it? I thought. I, think there was I a didn't. Kid. I didn't read that. I but, thought it was uh, arson. I'm pretty sure been. a kid. And then, um, oh my God, Little it was Sammy Morato. Nah, Sammy <laughs> didn't play with fire. Uh, no. Well, uh, 42 of the victims were interred in Queen of Heaven Cementery in Hillside, and there's a monument that's, right. that's been erected there. Uh, there's also a plaque now, I believe, by the location of the school. Yeah, the um, so you can visit that. Yeah, it was a big well part of the big Italian community, and I'm sort of kind of that Italian. Uh, number six is the 1947 Centralia mine disaster. This was in Wamek, Illinois, just outside of Centralia. Uh, this one was relatively simple. On uh, March 25th, 1947, there was a Centralia coal mine company, mine number five. Uh, exploded with 142 people inside. And there were 65 miners who died instantly of severe burns. Uh, 45 were killed by afterdamp, which is a toxic mixture of carbon dioxide, carbon monoxide, and nitrogen that's uh, released by the explosion. Now, eight miners actually survived when they were trapped under the surface uh, and they were rescued. There's a song by Woody Guthrie called The Dying Miner, uh, which is about the disaster. Yes, with the and Woody Guthrie, of course, is the father of Arlo Guthrie. <laughs> you do know that. Right? Uh, now I do. You do okay. know now. Okay, number five is another mine disaster. This is the 1909 Cherry Mine Disaster in Cherry, Illinois. Uh, this was actually the third worst mine disaster in United States history, and it claimed 259 lives. Yep. Uh, the fire started on November 13th when kerosene from a lantern dripped into a cart full of hay that uh, had been brought down for the mules that were used to pull cars out of the, the mine. Uh, so 
the fire spread. It, it overwhelmed the fan house. It prevented people from using the escape ladders, and it trapped a lot of the miners inside. So there were nearly two dozen, though, who survived the fire by sealing themselves behind a wall deep in the mine, where they actually survived for eight days until the fire subsided and the poisonous gases dispersed. Yes. Uh, so this this Very disaster uh, propelled a lot of mine safety guidelines to be put in place. Yeah, the um, Princeton Library has uh, a good uh, uh, display there. So does the um, museum about, about I think, that disaster. Library. Yeah, I think it's the library, uh, the Springfield Library. Very interesting. Sad as all heck, but but you know the the tale and the um, historical accounts of the entire event is. Um, luckily, photography was was. Uh, there's some damn good photos of it. Okay, <laughs> number four <laughs> is uh, the crash of Flight 191 in Des Plaines, Illinois. Now I know that you gentlemen probably remember this. Uh, this happened on on May twenty fifth, nineteen seventy nine. This was a McDonnell Douglas DC ten airliner. Yeah, and uh, it crashed moments after takeoff, and killing uh, it killed all two hundred fifty eight passengers and thirteen crew, along with two people who were unfortunately on the ground. Uh, it was later determined that. Um, there was an engine that detached due to improper maintenance. <laughs> yes, um, that's a bitch. <laughs> now, to this day, it remains the single deadliest airline accident on American soil. Uh, it doesn't count. The, the 9-11 attacks don't count for that because they actually the weren't an accident. Tires weren't flying either. No. So this is still <laughs> the worst accident, uh, airline accident. That area yeah, is supposed to be haunted, too. Was, what was it, flight number? 191. 191. And did you know that uh, David Booth, who I know, uh, called up the FAA and told him, because he had eight nights in a row of these premonitions of this this crash, and um, I recall to this day the FAA investigator calling David and the both of them crying on the phone. Uh, It was very haunting. The funny thing about that, those premonitions, he wasn't the only person that was getting these premonitions. And the FAA uh, today um, takes them very seriously. So if you call them up and say you had a dream? Well, they take it very seriously. And if they were able to have assembled each and every person's dreams... Uh, you know what they what they were use a dream catcher for that. Well, hell yeah, put it together, they would have uh, known which um, plane and airlines and everything, and possibly again, possibly could have prevented it. Do you know how haunted that area is, Mike? I know people that have been out there actually. Yeah, I was just about to mention that, of course, uh, as you know, this debris field was located near this mobile home park in Des Plaines. And residents have uh, reported odd electrical disturbances and seen phantom passengers uh, carrying luggage and wandering the grounds. I actually have a a friend whose husband grew up in the area, and they used to sneak out and see, try to see the debris field. Of course, today it's it's part of um, some sort of truck storage area, and it's uh, fenced off. So you can't actually go where the field is. Not a good place to build something, actually. Well, unless you want it to be haunted. Yeah. 
But did you know that David Booth, the very same guy who had these premonitions, had eight days of, or eight nights of a vision or premonition of an object coming towards the earth. And um, this was a precursor to all the uh, sensation and concern about the reappearance of Nibiru, which could Oh, you're be talking present time. Present time, oh. yeah. That was in 2003. And uh, huh. spent a lot of time talking to him, doing interviews with him. And uh, since then, he's pretty much fallen off the face of the earth. I believe he lives in New Hampshire. I never really understood that term. What's that? Technically, you can't fall off the face of the earth. Technically, yes. yes. <laughs> Isn't that correct, Mike? Uh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Mike's like, what? I don't have notes According on that. According to some people. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe you can. You can't defy gravity. Gravity is a law. I obey laws. <laughs> do you remember there that? There are people that would make sure you do fall off the face of the earth. <laughs> Go ahead, Mike. <laughs> okay, number three is the Iroquois Theater Fire. This was also in Chicago. Uh, this happened on December 30th, 1903. This was five weeks after the Iroquois' grand opening. It's a beautiful, majestic theater. And this actually was the worst theater fire in American history. Uh, it killed 572 people. Uh, another 30 di later died of their injuries. And in the alley behind the theater, uh, there were 125 bodies that were piled up, uh, some of them after having leapt to their deaths from the fire escape. So people say that that area, they call it Death Alley. Uh, today the area is relatively quiet, but I've read that uh, residents of the building behind the theater occasionally report feelings of uneasiness, as well as unexplained sounds they believe are tied to the disaster. Number two was, as we mentioned earlier, uh, the Eastland disaster. This was in Chicago, Illinois. So you did know about that. Yeah, you were just playing uh, dumb. He was <laughs> this, playing us alone. This occurred on a hot July day in 1915, and there were over 800 people uh, lost their lives when this excursion steamer called the Eastland capsized on the Chicago River. Now, the Eastland had recently passed inspection, but it was actually too top-heavy to handle the 2,700 passengers who crowded on board. So when you hear about, I was thinking as I was researching this about those ferries you hear capsize, you know, out in Egypt or something, and you think, Capsizing man, they must ferries. not have very good uh, boats oh, over yeah, there. But right. this happens, you that's know, right. happens to everyone. Do you know uh, who was on there and why they were on there? I thought it was some um, was it G union G employees who were on vacation. Is GE, that correct? is that what it was? I think it was Western, uh, it was Western Electric. Western Electric, it was a, and it was a company a, picnic. Yeah, company outing. And what had happened, somebody said that a, I don't know, was it a celebrity coming down? Or they went to see some boat coming, uh, moving along the river on the other side. So that what had happened is they all moved to the um, riverside instead of the uh, dock side and the ballast wasn't full and it just flipped them over now they yeah. the bodies were taken out and taken into the um, uh, Oprah studios mm -hmm. and that well at the time it was their the second regiment armory yes which is which, now the Oprah studio yeah, Mike's telling this story okay but okay <laughs> let him take it. and and it's quite haunted go ahead Mike well, that's true, and uh, this is the, the weirdest thing I think about this story is the fact that after it, after the accident, 
uh, the ship was actually raised and purchased by the U.S. Navy and was re, uh, re-enlisted as the USS Wilmette. So it was actually oh, used there's a good look. Uh, during <laughs> World War One. Yeah. Uh, number 10 uh, was the 1946 Naperville train disaster. Number 9 was the 1887 Chatworth train wreck. Uh, number 8 was the St. Anthony's Hospital fire. Number 7 was Our Lady of Angels school fire. Number 6 was the 1947 Centralia mine disaster. Number 5 was the 1909 Cherry Mine Disaster. Number 4 was the Crash of Flight 191. Number 3 was the Iroquois Theater Fire. Number 2 was the Eastland Disaster. And of course, the number 1 most tragic disaster in Illinois was the Great Chicago Fire. Uh, Now, I picked this because even though it wasn't as deadly as some of the other disasters on the list, uh, it did devastate four square miles of the city mm-hmm. and caused untold damage that fundamentally altered the, the history of Chicago. Uh, now, this fire, it started on October 8th, 1871, and it burned for a full two days until there was a rainstorm that uh, d- extinguished the flames. Now, of course, we've all heard the long-held myth about the cow kicking over a lantern uh, but the real origins of the fire remain unknown to this day. It's very controversial. So the cow story was a cover story? Well, the uh, the cow story that about the cow kicking over the lantern was made up by a newspaper reporter because oh. he thought it would sell more newspapers. Oh, supposedly there Boy, was some a, things um, never changed. There was a meteor. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there was a part well, Sam of a was telling me a he, like he thought it was a UFO that came down and blasted hey, it with a laser beam. You never know. <laughs> but no, I heard something about that. You also said been. it was Godzilla coming in off Lake Michigan. <laughs> now this, you know. <laughs> Sam looks no. at things different than we do. No, the Asian population was too small to <laughs> invade China at the, invade, uh, not China, invade Chicago at that time. But then again, it may have been higher. I don't know if they were building railroads, maybe. No, not even that. They weren't building railroads. There was a lot of swamp out here. Well, just to give a sense of the (laughs) devastation here, uh, it's said that about 17.5 thousand buildings were destroyed and hundreds were killed and over 90,000 people were left homeless. Um, But the fire did actually uh, compel Chicagoans to rebuild uh, into the great city it is today. Yeah, and they they have a much better, uh, actually, the Chicago building code that came out of that was uh, uh, still used to this day. Yeah, so there were some With positive variations. effects of some of these no these horrible disasters. Yeah. Keep your cow in the right but place, it, and no. no a way. lot of these disasters, you know, have spawned ghost stories and other legends over the years. So I thought it was it was an interesting and a, important uh, addition to our local uh, history. That was your most depressing was, list ever. Yeah, it was you know I'm I'm feeling better. How about you? <laughs> I, th- I think we couldn't even make fun of that list. I couldn't even make fun of it. That's the only thing Jeez. that was depressing to me. All right, thank you very much. That was Mike Clean, everybody. We'll be right back. You're listening to Threshold Radio. TheEdgeOnAir.com and Thresholds into Other Realms present Thresholds Radio, a weekly show dedicated to all things paranormal. Join your hosts Sam Moranto, John Stevenson, and Anthony Kopp Fridays from 10 to 11 p.m. for an expedition beyond your most unexplainable dreams. With new guests every week, Thresholds Radio will bend your views on reality. That's Friday nights 10 to 11 on TheEdgeOnAir.com. For more info on Thresholds Radio, visit UFO-info. 
You're listening to Threshold Radio. I'm Anthony K. We have Corinne Whiston on the phone with us right now, and she's in Scotland. Well, she's not the only one in the in the room there. Uh, Corinne, who else is with you? I'm here with June Reynolds, Des Whiston's sister. Hello. And we are in Elgin, Scotland. We had some of the radio show with the Moray Ghost Hunters, which we had just contacted when we came over for the wedding. June has always been kind of sensitive to the paranormal, to spirits, seen orbs. Can you describe what you've seen? Mm, yep. The orbs I see aren't just little, as people see, just little round balls of light floating by. The orbs I see are actually quite big. They're about the size of footballs. And they've actually got, like, electricity flashing inside. And you try and follow them. Well, I followed them. And they'll go out of a room, and then all of a sudden they'll just disappear. But they're not very scary to look at at all. They give you quite a warm, sort of welcoming feeling. Mm -hmm. That's uh, the only way I can describe them. Yeah. Um... When we brought this up, when you came over to America, you came the one year, mm-hmm. and uh, you had stayed in a back bedroom at my house back in America, in Illinois, and then when you came over two years later, you didn't want to stay in that bedroom. And I thought it was funny because I thought it was because of a bad back and that's a real low bed and it's a teeny tiny little cramped room. And later when we got talking... Yeah, I actually told you the reason I didn't want to stay in that room was because I was being watched. And I could sense a young man standing in the room watching me while I was sleeping in the room, so I became quite freaked out. And that just is weird because it correlated with me feeling. I always felt that there was, I always thought it was a cat on my bed. It felt like a cat walking across my bed, and Mm -hmm. it's like, it was not a cat. We, as a matter of fact, my indoor cat has now died, so there's no cats in the house. And at one point, I had what I thought was a very, very vivid dream. And I went down my stairs, through the kitchen, opened the stairs to go down to the basement, and there was a young man standing there about three steps down. And I can see him perfectly. Features, everything. And I just remember asking him, who are you? Who the hell are you and what do you want? And that's the last I remember. That's why I thought it was a dream because I don't remember going back up the stairs or anything else. But in talking now with uh, Wilma, with the Moray Ghost Hunters and Yvonne, who is a sensitive and much of her stuff comes to her in dreams saying that the dream-wake cycle kind of works like that. So it was really kind of freaky that we're sensing the same, 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 a young man. And Mm -hmm. never have figured that one out. So I think I'm going (laughs) to have some sensitives come around to my house and figure out. But I've never felt, I didn't feel anything benevolent. I've never felt threatened, never felt unsafe. No. It's just, he's there. And what are you doing in my house? Yeah. And uh, why don't you tell them about what happened with the ring? Oh, this was uh, an incident. It happened a couple of... Well, last night actually happened. Yesterday, um, well, at the weekend, my daughter got married and I gave her my mother's wedding ring. And 
Des had come over from the States, and I didn't realize till after the wedding that he had my father's wedding ring on. So we decided to get the two rings together for the last time and to take a photograph of them. Um, the photograph was absolutely beautiful. But I went to my bed last night and I woke up crying and my husband actually woke me up because I was crying and then I turned to him and said that I could see lots of black spots in the room just, they were just everywhere and he says well it's probably because you've been crying and your eyes aren't adjusting to the darkness so I lay there for a little while then suddenly the, these black spots started coming to the center in front of me and as they came nearer they got brighter and in the end I could I had what I could only describe was like a television screen and on this screen I could see my mother and father walking towards me they were holding hands and waving and they were showing me the wedding rings together on their fingers and they were just so happy mm. so I was so upset. I got up. I went into the kitchen and cried my eyes out for half an hour before I could go back to sleep again. But it was a happy cry. It was a happy, happy cry. cry. <laughs> yeah. mm -hmm. So that was just, you've had quite a few really experiences, stuff like that. Yes. Yeah. Um, was one experience I had two years ago. Um, I went with Scottish ghost hunters to... Um, Aberdeen. In Aberdeen there's an old toll booth which used to be a prison many, many years ago, well hundreds of years ago, and the prison is still as it, now as it was then. So we did a, a night vigil and um, we were all, all stood round in this one area and suddenly I felt I could not move. I couldn't move my legs at all. It was like somebody had super glued me to the ground. And I started crying. So the psychic that was with us at the time says, well, just tell us exactly what comes into your head, what you think about. And all I could think about was this old woman that used to go around the prison throwing the, the prisoners their food hundreds of years ago. And she actually died in the prison while she was doing her job. And, um, yeah, I was quite upset. So the the medium came over to me and tried to get whatever it was away from me. And um, she said it had been done. And the group started walking off. And I found out I was still glued to the spot. So they had to link hands around me. And all of them had to ask the energy to, whatever energy it was, to leave me. And it was after that that I could walk. But my legs yeah. were really achy the rest of the evening. Uh, that's just one experience that was quite unexplainable by myself. Yeah. Now, you, you said you were crying. Were you crying because you were scared? Were you crying because you were angry? What were the emotions tied with that? I think I was crying because I was picking up on somebody else's feelings. They weren't my feelings. Mm -hmm. I was quite happy. But this just came over me. Just out of nowhere, I just started crying. Right. And the group noticed this was going on. Mm -hmm. So it was uh, it was a very interesting, interesting experience. Thing. Yeah, and we heard a lot of kind of spooky things with Wilma tonight. Yeah, and it's the features changing or something when That's somebody right. comes over them, and that uh, one of the girls, uh, Yvonne, 
mm. one of the pictures she took when they were talking about the uh, oh the old abandoned uh, emergency yep. airstrip, yep. Mm-hmm. and they were just where they say where you just take the pictures. Yes. And in one of the pictures, that's the one I wanted to see tonight. She's going to email it to me. Mm-hmm. Um, three airmen, two standing up, one down, just like they're posing. Now that would freak yes. me out. Yeah, especially <laughs> within all, with all their old, you yeah, know, in their old uniforms that they used to wear back in that time. Yeah, because we we want to see that, Ian. Who, yep. I think Ian, I don't know if it was Ian or Yvonne took the picture, but he said, you know, but Des knows all, people who know all the regiments and stuff, it was, it's so clear, he says, and so that will be interesting to see, and I've mm-hmm. never caught anything other than the orbs at our house yeah. when we were just running through real quick, mm-hmm. and they were following June, by the way, <laughs> and I'm not the only one to confirm that. That's right. As I was walking up the stairs, one of your friends says uh, they thought my husband was coming up behind I mean, me. Yes. Because they could hear two sets of footsteps Steps. down the stairs. Yeah. So I went and stood over in this corner, and you took pictures of me, and there was these orbs floating, this big orb floating above me. Yeah, and it followed you several places, places. through the house as we yeah. kept taking that, so we knew it wasn't... Yeah. You know, it's like, it's following her. (laughs) It was weird. Yeah. And, guess I remember that. Brandy said, her husband came up right behind her. Her, No, he's not. He's down talking to your husband on the front porch. Yeah. (laughs) That was weird. So, I guess we got to do more investigating here to find out who the young man is. Yeah. Uh the core group are all sensitives. They don't use the EMF meters and stuff. No. They just go and come back and what their impressions are, and they're working on, what would you say, training that sense, yes. developing that sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so I know, like Sam was asking, poor woman got a little flustered tonight, asking the questions about the history, because they don't go back and do that. They're more just focused on the sensitive. Yeah, what they pick up when they're there. So, yeah. Wow, these are very interesting cases. Well, there was that one incident at uh, Inverary Jail. Mm-hmm. In mind yeah. that I took you along on that night, yeah. last time you were over. And we were all sat in one of the cells, and we had a, a little dictaphone going to see if we could catch any EVPs. And um, everybody had a turn in asking a question. And it came to my turn. And I asked whoever was in the cell, did they have a family and did they miss their family? And when they played the tape back, the reply was, get out, out of here. With, uh, in clear. a very, very clear, very forceful voice. Mm-hmm. Yes, with a, a few profanities in which we shan't repeat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, and for those of you who don't know, that what is it? It's electronic voice phenomena, That's which right, yeah. you don't hear with the human ear, but for some reason it's digital, I believe, yeah. that picks it up more yeah. often, and they play it back. And sometimes it's they, they have all different grades and levels of this. Uh, I think, I, I can't remember what they were, but one is that you can hear clearly without any filtering, and then they have several... That's right. Filter yeah. levels. And, uh, but this one was quite clear. There was no filtering or anything. The guy just played it back, and okay. it's like, whoa. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
um, there's another short story I'd like to relate is my sister and I went down to do the old theatre in Edinburgh uh, spent a weekend down there because there was a ghost hunting festival on that weekend so we went along to the old theatre in Edinburgh and there was uh, a psychic called Colin Fry actually doing a show so we went in to see him and after the show we met up with the Scottish ghost hunters afterwards so we got it back into the theatre and that and did um, a night vigil in there but the, before the night vigil started my sister and I were sitting in the seats with the other members and the psychic says um, there's a man here and he couldn't wait in line to speak through Colin Fry because he's not that sort of man. He's very impatient. And he says his name's John. His two daughters are sitting there in the front row and he wants to know why they are there and why they aren't at home in bed. And also that the, the his youngest daughter had such a terrible toothache that she needed to go and put a bit of whiskey on it and that would help cure it. But it was quite funny because our father's name's John and uh, my sister and I were sitting there and nobody in that group that night knew that she had had, she had really bad toothache. <laughs> <laughs> and he was a non-believer as well. Yeah. And he stated that he still didn't believe in it, although he was crossed over to the other side. So, well, I guess they stay with you on things. Well, thank you very much, guys. Kareen, Wiston, everybody, we'll be right back. You're listening to Threshold Radio. TheEdgeOnAir.com and Thresholds into Other Realms present Thresholds Radio, a weekly show dedicated to all things paranormal. Join your hosts Sam Moranto, John Stevenson, and Anthony Cop Fridays from 10 to 11 p.m. for an expedition beyond your most unexplainable dreams. With new guests every week, Thresholds Radio will bend your views on reality. That's Friday nights 10 to 11 on TheEdgeOnAir.com. For more info on Thresholds Radio, visit UFO-info. I'm Richard Dolan. You're listening to Threshold Radio. You're listening to Threshold Radio. I'm Anthony K. With me is Sam Ranto and John Stevenson. John, where the hell were you the last couple weeks, man? Yeah, if any of our listeners noticed, I haven't been here the last couple weeks. My mother had fractured her foot and is in a full leg cast and in a wheelchair right now, so I've been... Spending some time in Michigan helping my mother out. Well, He's how, a good son. How the hell did that happen? She actually just uh, twisted her ankle, kind of, but it, it fractured her bone. It, uh, it, weird thing in Michigan is the ground isn't like in Illinois, as weird as that sounds. It's in the air. It's full of holes, and it's all sand. And there's little holes everywhere. It's so easy to trip. Critters. Yeah, I mean, they're, it's only you know two hours away from us, and it's like a totally different thing. Burrowing quitter. They don't have black dirt in Critters. Michigan. Do you know that? Black sand. No, black Volcanic. dirt. It's all sand. Oh. There's no black dirt. No, it's all sand, and it, that's why, it, you know, even when you have, like, um, say, for instance, seismic activity, you could oh. just disappear right into that sand. Yeah. Well, the Ooh. weird thing about my mom's house, she says I brought a ghost with me. There you go. You probably did, man. Well, I set up a grandfather clock for my mom. It was actually mine given to me by uh, my grandmother, her mother. I Dude, up... grandfather clocks are loaded with spirits. <laughs> well, I, I set that up. I was actually a clocksmith for years, too, amongst many of my things. 
and I set that clock up, and uh, the next day, it had stopped for no apparent reason. Got it going again, and then it ended up, it jumped ahead like eight hours, which does might not sound like no big deal, but being a clocksmith, the clock can't do that by itself, especially that type of clock because it's gear-driven. I set that back up, and the day later, the clock backed up an hour, which is a virtual impossibility on a grandmother clock or grandfather clock. And then the one day, my bed, I went down, came back upstairs, and my bed had moved by itself. So I get the weirdest feeling. My mom blames it on me and all my ghost stuff. <laughs> well, you saw a ghost. I saw something weird, too, this week. And it usually happens when I'm on the phone with Sam, but not this time. I um, I was sitting outside about 3 in the morning, and I saw some bright lights just kind of uh, circling. But they were too far to determine whether it was an unidentified flying object or an airplane. But it was awfully strange. No sound. Strange colored lights. Uh, and... It, they were not pattering. They were all out of uh, pattern, and it was just kind of strange. Yeah, I've never, I've never seen anything like it before, though. So it was kind of scary at first, and yeah, but I don't know. You know something else I noticed when I was in Michigan? What? I'm always talking about paranormal stuff and Bigfoot and Littlefoot and monsters and demons and ghosts and stuff. I had to go outside in the middle of the night to go check my car, or my my mom's house in Michigan. I went out the back door. They're in a big wooded lot, and there's woods back there. That's why it's a wooded lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I walk out there. I get about 10 foot, and I stop dead in my tracks. It is black out there like you have never seen black. Oh, yeah, man. I had to run back in the house and get a flashlight. I'm like, there's no way I'm walking out here. I could see Bigfoots in my head. <laughs> yep. There's werewolf out there. Yeah. <laughs> That's weird. I'm into all this stuff. It's pitch black, and I'm like, okay, I'm an adult. This shouldn't bother me little thing in my head's like, hell no, get out of here. <laughs> Please, he forgets to go back out there and uh, get the windows rolled up. He gets out and Sasquatch is sleeping in his back I mean, seat. it's funny. It actually, I mean, it did give me the creeps. I'm not used to that. It was just blacker than black out there. Hmm. And it, being in the middle of the woods, you know, my mind was just going absolutely wild. <laughs> It's Farland Huff's problem, you know. Tell me about Bigfoot. Farland has, you know, he, Stan Courtney. Oh yeah. Wasn't there another person who talked about Bigfoot? Oh sure, our current case down in yeah. down southeast that we won't mes- mention. Yeah, so I, and I, by the way, there's been a lot of activity. Yeah, you know, uh, sorry to jump subjects so fast. I you always do that. It's okay. You know, when you were talking to Richard about the. Um, the London riots and all that. What was the actual cause for these riots? Oh, well, no, I just actually read that. That's... What do you do after a long day? Oh, of yeah, <laughs> yeah. What do you do after a long day of setting fires? <laughs> I have a refreshing Dr Pepper. <laughs> <laughs> so, what I actually read yesterday said uh, there's multiple theories, but one of them is because that that 29 year old man was shot by the police. But it's mostly younger people. So, so they just started writing. Well, no, they said that they believe beforehand because of the unemployment. And I guess the teenagers have been treated really bad by the government there recently. Well, you got cameras up at every corner down there. We got Des Whiston right down there right now. We're going to actually talk to him, what, next week, Sam? Well, we interviewed him, and unfortunately, things didn't record properly. So that will be on for next week. Yeah, he's in Elgin, Scotland, which is spelt like Elgin, exactly the same. And that is the sister city here in the United States. Uh, did a very interesting um, interview that you won't hear. Oh, we will hear. <laughs> we have it recorded also uh, digitally, so we'll 
have poor Anthony go out of his mind mastering that. Luckily, that's a short Making <laughs> sense out of it. But it's, it was a very interesting conversation to at least five different uh, um, members of what is the Mari Ghost Organization in, again, uh, Elgin. And by the way, when I'm doing the invitation and doing the interview, we had so many interruptions and unusual phenomena taking place on the uh, um, on our side and their side with the microphone and the recording. It was very bizarre. Could just be long distance. It could be just Skype. I don't know. Well, but either way, I got a complaint. Last time we were on there, uh, it was a little scratchy. But, I mean, that's, he's on the other side of the world. I mean, what do people expect? Coming from a producer, it's not going to be the best quality uh, sound if you're on the other side of the world. It was actually sounding as if it was in a barrel all sorts of weird noises and stuff and speaking of weird noises you know we're going to actually go back and review this but last what was last week or the week before we were talking to jose Escamilla and the interview got corrupted now i go home later on that night and i i started you know going through it to see if i can fix it and then i realized that this thing is saying stuff. <laughs> it sounds like monsters talking in the background or something. I don't know. But, All uh, I can tell you is Jose wants to hear that he was really excited so about yeah, it. Yeah, we're, we're going to yeah. definitely review it before yeah. we play it on the air, but I definitely uh, look forward to that. It is it is kind of creepy. Yeah. Too, Very bizarre. Hear it. It's, I swear to God it was telling me, yeah, like, I swear to God it said die. It's that little voice Stop. in your head. That's totally different. Eat a candy it bar. Normally says Eat a candy bar. It was really creepy. It was like... Speeding up, slowing yeah. down. Your mother then, sucks just, spaghetti in the hallway. You have, to, you have to play that for me. I have to hear that. Yeah, it was, it was kind of creepy. Hey, Sam. Starts belching out. That question for soup. you. Go ahead. Should we do a meet and greet for all our listeners? Yeah, we should do a meet and greet. So I want to do, do one from the, the Bachelor's Grove website that I've been talking about. And we can do it with our listeners here if all five of these people show up. I think if they show up, it'd be very and Michael Clean said he wanted to be there, too. Yeah. I think it'd be a good idea. Now, most of you listeners don't want to or don't know how to interact with us but feel free to comment email and let us know if you'd be interested in a meet and greet we yeah. but we do need a little interaction to know if you're interested if it's yes. worth our time to set it up so drop us email go to the website a note anything you want yes. go to our facebook site any way you want okay i'd like to thank everybody for listening to this show tonight uh, if you can't make our Sunday night at 7 o'clock show, hey, we got Friday night from 10 to midnight. And if you can't make that, we archive every show on UFO-info.com. So uh, we'll see you next weekend. Until then, sign our off. TheEdgeOnAir.com and Thresholds into Other Realms present Thresholds Radio, a weekly show dedicated to all things paranormal. Join your hosts Sam Moranto, John Stevenson, and Anthony Kopp Fridays from 10 to 11 p.m. for an expedition beyond your most unexplainable dreams. With new guests every week, Thresholds Radio will bend your views on reality. That's Friday nights 10 to 11 on TheEdgeOnAir.com. For more info on Thresholds Radio, visit ufo-info. Dot com.